Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick. This is episode number 68 of the Mandolins and Beer Podcast. And hey, happy 25th birthday to the Mandolin Cafe. That's right, 25 years ago, my favorite website started up. So congratulations to Scott and everybody over there to 25 years. Everybody raise a glass to them, unless you're driving. Let's be responsible about this beer intake. Hey everybody, hope everybody's doing well. I'm excited to have today's guest, Jason Verlindy. He's uh, the pretty much the guy behind Fretboard Journal and the Fretboard Journal podcast, and he's a super great guy, and I've just found all his work inspirational for years, so it's, it was awesome to talk to him, and he was excellent. A couple things we talk about, I'll have links to, by the way, at mandolinsandbeer.com. He talks about an ebook that the Fretboard Journal um, had put out about luthiers, and um, I contacted him yesterday. I was trying to track it down online, and it was only available via a phone number, but he put a link up there, so I'll have a link to that. So if you want to pick that up, uh, I'm going to read it today, actually. You can go to the website. And also, I talk about the Tony Rice interview that's out there on YouTube from 2019, and it's pretty pretty low-quality fidelity, but that is out there, and I'll have a link to that, too, as we reference it during the podcast. Um, before we get to the podcast, though, I want to thank my sponsors, Peghead Nation. If you play any sort of rootsy instrument, Peghead Nation has got you covered, and they've got the best lineup of mandolin instructors out there. They got Sharon Gilchrist, they got Joe Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibish, and Chad Manning. They got the high quality multi angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab. There's play along tracks, and there's tons, tons of tunes to play. I've learned a bunch myself just recently. Uh, If you join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now, you get your first month for free. Go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. Also want to thank Northfield Mandolins for sponsoring. Let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com and download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And we've got Ear Trumpet Labs who hand build sweet looking microphones in Portland, Oregon. Their mics are beautifully designed. They have great feedback rejection for live use and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. I'm still thinking about that special edition blacked out microphone they put out for Halloween. It's just amazing. And then also, Pava Mandolins. Pava, dedicated to building for the impassioned player. And they're in Austin, Texas. And uh, again, don't forget to check that Tom Ellis interview out I did a few weeks ago if you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. And let's get into the interview. If you get a chance, just go over to the uh, Apple Store and leave a review and, and maybe a rating. And let's get into the episode with Jason. Cheers, everybody. Have a great week.
All right. So now I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Jason Verlindi. Jason, how's it going? Uh, it's going all right. We're out here in Washington State and uh, hunkering down like the rest of the world. So, yeah. Yeah, no kidding. And this is the 15th year anniversary, Jason, from Fretboard Journal. If you uh, didn't see the the uh, picture of who was going to be on this week, the the amazing magazine Fretboard Journal. Thank you. Yeah, 15 yeah. years. I know. It's crazy. Uh, yeah, 15 years ago, right about now, if you were to walk into a Borders or Barnes & Noble or a guitar store, you'd see that first issue, which actually had David Grisman on the cover. So. That's right. That's Full right. circle. That's, yeah. a, <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. How did you... Um, how did you get yourself into a fretboard journal or, well, I guess let's start with your, start with your backstory. Do you, do you play a, a instrument as you have like a main instrument? I am a, uh, a perpetual beginner at many instruments, but I guess my main <laughs> instrument is probably the acoustic guitar. And, but, uh, along the way I have picked up pretty much almost every stringed instrument and tried to dive into it. And I love them all. And I, I hope that's kind of reflected in the magazine, but, um, yeah, I mean, the, I was a music writer out of college. I wrote about, you know, indie bands and punk bands and, and wrote record reviews and did interviews. And it wasn't until I moved up to Seattle in 1998 that I kind of got more of the instrument bug and my taste certainly got more diverse. And uh, it, I had a, I actually worked for Amazon when they first started selling music back in the day, 1998. They, oh, wow. They opened, they were just a bookstore. They hired a bunch of music journalists from around the country who worked for weeklies and magazines and stuff. And they brought us all to Seattle and we all worked like crazy and launched a music side of the store. And uh, I was there until 2005. I did not get rich, just so you know, uh, but uh, but I did get the musical instrument bug. And I it was uh, a steady enough job that for the first time in my life, I was able to buy like a nice mandolin and uh, tenor guitars and some nice guitars. And all the while I'm you know, listening to all sorts of music, obsessing over every record that David Grisman put out and looking at guitar magazines at the time. And I don't even, I guess there were probably some other fretted instrument magazines, but they always just were kind of like, yeah, this isn't, this isn't the kind of story. These aren't the stories that I want to read. And then I would go on eBay and buy like old issues of frets and picking and stuff. Yeah. It'd be like, what happened? These were really interesting stories and musicians were interviewing other musicians and uh every issue i would like lose myself in and so the fretboard journal was sort of started uh like i said it was in 2005 that michael Simmons and i decided to launch it and see what would happen <laughs> here we are wow so, um that's yeah. that's amazing and be you know you had some sort of you know experience i guess you know like you said working for college papers but did you have any idea what it took to put together a, a magazine right off the bat is that oh, something you no. learned about i still don't i still don't you know <laughs> the goalposts keep moving uh every month every week uh no we so michael is uh, an amazing musical instrument instrument encyclopedia and a good friend of mine and he's no longer at the fretboard journal he went back to his old job which was at griffin stringed instruments but uh michael and i would just uh geek out about things and so I guess it was probably 20 years ago, we actually put out a zine about ukuleles called the Ukulele Occasional. We printed maybe 2,500 copies, maybe 3,000. We interviewed as many people. This was like way before the ukulele craze. 
is of recent note. Uh, we were too ahead of the curve for our own good, <laughs> but but we we you know we interviewed uh, William Macy and Eddie Vedder and all these people that were way above our pay grade to be talking to. Uh, because they're all like, oh, we love ukuleles. It's, uh, yeah, if you've got a ukulele magazine brewing, of course we want to be in it. <laughs> so we did that and we printed, like I said, a, a fairly small number and elderly graciously carried a bunch and Tower Records was still around back then. They carried a bunch. And so we we kind of knew that if you uh, paid a printer for <laughs> books, you'd get boxes of books showing up at your garage and then you'd send them to people and maybe they'd send you money in return. <laughs> that was kind of the magazine model. Um, but then we had to kind of up it a little bit and, and get a little more professional with the fretboard journal. But uh, we, there, there were models. So for folks who've never seen it, uh, it's basically a, a very thick sort of like almost like a museum catalog, but filled with interviews and histories and uh, interviews both with luthiers as well as with players. And we cover every we don't do a ton with like basses, but we've covered banjo players and mandolin players and obviously electric and acoustic guitar. We try to have a little bit of each of that in every issue. Um, but there are magazines just like this for other things. Like there's a surfing, surfing magazine called the Surfer's Journal that's been around for 25 years. There's magazines for fly fishermen that are like this. So the template kind of existed of like a, a higher end, uh, you know, reduced advertising magazine that you would hold on to for the rest of your life. Like that existed. It just didn't exist for fretted instruments. So we, we put our stake in the ground for that. Yeah. I remember it was amazing. You know, I was Telling you beforehand, I you know I was worked in management for Barnes and Noble for years and years, and uh, I mean you know you see <laughs> thousands of magazines um, yeah. a month, and that one came out, and obviously you know Grisman of course has my attention, but then just the quality of of the magazine, and you're like oh this is this is really really nice, like it stands out among every instrument magazine, it stands out with you know like you would say like home magazines which are you know it was it yeah. was really incredible that you that you went that route especially right off the bat yeah i mean we you know we probably should have started out cheaper and raised our prices over time and our production quality but we were both kind of snobs about it and i'm glad we were because people obviously love those early issues and it kind of it kind of created the the platform for everything else we do and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I every story that we run, and I, you know, we still get pitches from writers that I have to correct them on this. But like, I, I want everything that we run to be timeless. So if you pick up the new issue now, or you pick it up ten years from now, the stories will still be relevant, the interviews will still be insightful, and it won't just be talking about some new release or some new gear that you know that they were covering. I, I, I want these things to kind of stand the test of time. Yeah, well, it absolutely does. And, you know, usually if you get a nice magazine, the first thing a store is going to do is put it towards the front because it looks a lot better than, you know, spin <laughs> falling, falling <laughs> yeah. over and curling up at the front row. You know, it's like durable. No, I know. I get it. Yeah. Barnes & Noble was very good to us over the years and, and still is. And um, Yeah, it's 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 been interesting. Uh, and, and Grisman on the cover of the first one was, you know, both um, because – Michael was in Grisman was still in the Bay Area back then, and, and Michael had a relationship with him in the Bay Area, but also just sort of a symbolic thing of you know we don't want to just be another guitar magazine that runs you know Eddie Van Halen or Jimi Hendrix stories all the time. Grisman is someone who's like so musically omnivorous and 
so interesting and has his label and is obviously a god of his instrument that it just felt like the right thing to do to kind of set the tone. idea and it was so nice to see you know again like mandolin information you're, you're not going to see it i mean if you pick up like acoustic guitar magazine or or anything like that you may be lucky to run across like a review or like you know a couple hundred words about somebody who's got an album coming out in the first like 10 pages where all the you know little things are but never like a feature article and and here comes this you know, here's David Grisman on the cover. So Matt, immediately for me, I'm like, yeah, this is amazing. You know, and then you had the the Thiele one with Grisman did the Grisman did the interview with Thiele. Was that? Yeah, yeah. yeah Grisman interviewed Thiele for us. Yeah. Yeah, it's. Cr- I mean, <laughs> that I think that's like, online. It sold out pretty quick, but I think the whole thing is online with just fewer pictures. But it, it is still around. So yeah. So how much how much has the print world changed for you starting 15 years ago? To now, because you guys, you were also, you kind of held out a little bit before doing like the online PDF sort of version. Yeah, that's been a relatively recent addition. And honestly, one of the main drivers for that was just, and, and I'm not, this isn't a judgment about what's coming, going on here in the US because it's it predates that. But the, the postage situation was just getting so spotty. We had people in Europe paying, you know. We weren't really making any money off of this, but they were paying a fair amount of money just to cover the postage for, you know, getting magazines delivered to France or England or wherever or Asia. And then they'd show up torn or they wouldn't show up at all. And then we'd have to send out replacement copies, which then meant suddenly we were losing money on a subscription. And so the digital subscription was really out of necessity of like a lot of people, as much as I'm a book book collector and love keepsake things on my bookshelf and, you know, have all these amazing magazines from over the years and everything else a lot of people just want the information and so it was like okay if you want the information we'll we'll offer pdfs but yeah magazines so 15 years ago let's think back it it was borders was still around your rival at barnes and noble uh barnes and noble was around there was definitely uh, i mean there were guitar center at least did a better job of merchandising magazines they don't really do a job at all at magazines right now um and so, you know, th- we would send a ton of copies to all those places every issue. We've paired that back because I hate waste. And, you know, you probably remember this from back in the day, like a, a good, a great magazine will sell 50% of the copies that any Barnes & Noble stocks. Absolutely. <laughs> Barnes yeah. & Noble will get 20 copies. And if 10 sell, everyone's doing back backflips and saying how amazing that is. Um, and some magazines only sell one or two, believe it or not, you know, of the 20, uh, that get allocated to a store. So that bugged me because a, these magazines cost an arm and a leg to produce and B just, it just seems super wasteful. Um, so we've scaled back a little bit on that national newsstand presence. We obviously had to start doing, uh, some online content like everybody else, but we do our online content still to this day, pretty differently. We don't. If a magazine article appears in the magazine, it generally doesn't appear on our website. We have other kinds of content that's more web-friendly than a 4,000-word article on our website. We started doing videos, gosh, I don't know, nine, 
nine, 10 years ago. Uh, my son was about to be born in 2010 and I, my wife was very pregnant and I politely asked her if I could go enroll in like a video, make a video documentary boot camp. <laughs> so I flew to Maine to the Maine media center. Oh wow. You weren't, you weren't like, joking around about going. <laughs> no, I took like was... a week long course. This was sort of at the very beginning of, you know, the DSLR doing videos craze. So like Canon came out with their 5D camera that finally shot as beautiful a video as any video camera did, if not far better. And so uh, I took this course and then immediately became a dad shortly after. But at least I sort of had enough knowledge to get into trouble that if I'm out interviewing one of my music heroes, I could also turn the camera onto video mode and not be, you know, completely out of focus. <laughs> and so we started doing videos because one of the byproducts of, you know, a quirky niche magazine like this is you do get to see amazing collections and you do get to talk to your music heroes and you do find yourself, you know, being a fly on the wall in situations where being able to kind of document them in more than one way is, is really a cool thing. So started doing videos. I don't know. at not eight. It was probably eight and a half years ago. Uh, one of the very first videos I did is still one of our most popular videos, which is I interviewed Jackson Brown for our magazine. And at the very end, I was just like, hey, Jackson, do you mind if uh, I, I video you playing a song? And he played something fine. And I barely knew anything about how to record it. And I had the very first generation of that Zoom uh what was the first four, four in, I forget what it was called. The one that looked like a taser. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. had that and I just propped it up like on a book out of frame. And people to this day will email and say like, what microphones did you use on that? And I'm like, Oh my God, it was like a zoom that you could buy all day long for $20 on eBay right now. It's so worthless. Uh, but that was, that was how I did that. And then from there, you know, the Fretboard Journal had kind of, we've had the same home office, or not, it's not in my home, it's an actual office for about 10 years. We've had the same spot in the Ballard neighborhood of Seattle. Started getting artists in, not only to do interviews for the magazine, but also do videos. And then I guess we started podcasting probably eight or nine years ago too. So what started as a print-only magazine is now a print-only magazine plus a digital magazine, podcast, videos, email newsletters, all the social media stuff. And now we put out three different podcasts, and I think we're going to put out two more coming in January. Are you really? <laughs> so yeah. Not mandolin ones, are they? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, not I'm mandolin ones. Around. <laughs> not ones that we're doing – I mean, I'll, I'll just tease one, which is the one that I'm kind of working on personally. It doesn't really have to do with music at all. Oh, <laughs> so really? Wow. Leave it at that. Yeah, cool, um, man. Which is, I, I like interviewing all sorts of people, and, and it'll be fun to kind of stretch my legs a little bit. So, Oh, that's neat. Uh, yeah, it's fun. I mean, you know, the pand everybody's got their pandemic projects. Some people are pruning bonsai trees. Some people are perfecting sourdough. And I'm just kind of like trying to up my audio editing and going like, well, what else can I do here? You know, I we, we can only put out so many magazines, you know, realistically per year. But I can stay up late one night and record a podcast. That's easy. <laughs> <laughs> I love your podcast, too. I mean, your podcast was definitely one of the first ones, first music ones that I could actually listen to um, 
every episode, but it's really inspirational for me. It makes me work harder when I'm doing these podcasts. So I really appreciate the work you put into it. Thank thank you. Yeah. I, I, you know, and I, I will add the podcasts are mostly my voice for better or worse, but you know, the magazine is contributors from around the world, really, you know, writing for us and taking photos for us and, and, uh, not getting paid a whole lot, but wanting to be a part of this little community <laughs> we've built and, and been in the, you know, be a part of the magazine, which I'm super grateful for. But for me personally, you know, I love talking to musicians and I've been able to talk to a lot of my music heroes, but I love hearing how every luthier ended up becoming a luthier, um, whether they're a guitar maker or a mandolin maker, or obviously there's a bunch that do both. I, I, they're all fascinating. No one obviously graduated from high school and immediately thought, you know, oh, I think I'm going to carve F5 mandolins better than I, you know, (laughs) better than anyone else. No one does that. And so everybody's kind of stumbled upon it in different ways. And, um, yeah, I, I, I just love hearing those stories. You know, they, I think if you're not in this world, it might seem boring or weird or arcane, but I totally geek out on every every craftsperson I've ever interviewed. So that's awesome. I mean, my family's the same way, like not my um, you know, like wife, obviously she's familiar with all the music I listen to, but it's funny telling like certain friends or uh, like, Oh man, I'm interviewing so-and-so. And they're like, yeah, no idea who that is. And to me, I'm like, no, you gotta, I gotta be kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I get as nervous interviewing like a Lynn Dudenbostel or Tom Mellis as a David Grisman, but you know, to my wife, the only connection she'll have, it'll be like, Oh, he played with Jerry Garcia. Oh, okay. That one. Yeah. You know, <laughs> he gets street cred for that. Do you remember like um, one of the issues that came out where you were like, I can't believe like this was the, you know, the issue for you that you're like, wow, we've done it. We've, we're, we're accomplishing what we set out to do. I mean, oh man, I never, the, the ball or the rock is always being pushed up the hill. And, uh, I always try to raise the bar from every issue to the next. And so I've never been able to really put my feet up on my desk and go, uh, you know, oh, now I can relax. Cause there's always another issue around the corner. Uh, as, as subscribers get their, you know, issue in the mail, like we're already, kind of slogging through the next issue. We never really get to do a victory lap, but, um, but we have had some, I mean, I got to interview Steve Martin, which was just a most surreal thing imaginable um, because yes, it is a lot easier to talk to um, one of the world's biggest stars. If you have, you know, can talk about banjos a little bit and not just <laughs> sound starstruck, but uh, you know, that, that was a hard one that was like, he was like, wow, I, I can't believe this is happening. So there's been stuff like that. Um, we did a fretboard journal. We started doing events about five years ago. We started, we actually were doing events predating you at breweries i should mention oh, um, sweet. we used to do one of the cool things about the neighborhood our office is in uh which hopefully will still be there post-covid is uh, there are dozens of nano breweries and micro breweries around the ballard neighborhood of seattle it's where a lot of the bigger breweries that ended up selling out started but there's still this sort of like you know you can you can walk and within a mile hit 20 plus amazing breweries and just hop from one to the next. Uh, obviously Seattle weather sometimes prohibits that and COVID <laughs> will definitely prohibit that. But, but in a normal year with in the summer, you can do all that. And so 
I got to know some breweries around town and sort of we would hang out with them. They're one of the few places where you can bring a young kid and, you know, a book or a game or whatever, or sometimes even just food from the outside and have a beer before you go home or, you know, however you do it. And so I got to know a few of those guys and I'd be like, what do you guys do? Like, what's your least crowded day? And they would be like, oh, Tuesdays suck here. What if I just... (laughs) had a bunch of guitar geeks in that corner and i'm sure most of them will drink beer like you don't even have to do anything can i just do that can i have those three picnic tables on tuesday and so we started doing that at a a handful of breweries there's urban family brewing which has since moved but is still around um there's northwest peaks brewing which has moved as well but still around (laughs) we would we would just have these very informal gatherings where I would literally go into our subscriber newsletter database and pull all the people in our area code and say, you know, just do an email blast. We're like, hey, we're all going to be here on Tuesday. No admission, no expectations. Like literally nothing's going to happen, but bring an instrument if you want. And, you know, people would bring, you know, a Monoleone mandolin or their lore and you know, it'd be 20 or 30 people just having beers and shooting the breeze, but they'd be these amazing instruments. Yeah. And it was just kind of a fun way to like feel somewhat connected to the local musicians. And sometimes they'd get bigger and sometimes they'd be pretty small and intimate, but it was always fun. So yeah, we were doing of those. And then five years ago, we decided to like put it on steroids and we had this thing called the fretboard summit, which was in the Bay area. And I literally, as you probably did with this podcast, like just rated my Rolodex, like everyone I had crossed paths with who they definitely did not owe me any favors, but I just like, <laughs> you know, tried to invite them to this thing. And almost everybody, because of just some weird quirk and timing, was able to come to it. And so it was just this like ridiculous stacked lineup at this eco resort outside of Santa Cruz and uh, you know, a couple hundred people came from literally around the world and we had, you know, Bill Collings was there and Joe Henry and Bill Frizzell and Courtney Hartman and uh, Chris Eldridge and Julian Lodge and just on and on (laughs) this amazing artist Blake Mills was there, all these incredible musicians who are my heroes. And so we did that. We did it a second time the next year. And then we took a little hiatus because it, you know, it was a ton of work, a bit of a distraction from our, the magazine and, and not that profitable really. And now we hope to bring it back, but that that's sort of one big way that the magazine has evolved in 15 years is like just getting beyond the printed page, you know, doing events, doing podcasts, doing web stuff um you know obviously social media wasn't really even around 15 years ago the way we know it now so that was a very long-winded response to your question no that's perfect (laughs) i mean that's why i think it's it's been so successful though is because you you venture you've got all these things going on and i think that's the key to any sort of longevity is um especially in in any sort of medium like you've got to keep evolving and moving and trying to find things to do it because there's there's a chance that that whatever that is it's like music now you know like sure sure recording a cd i mean do you record cds does do people buy cds like there are people who buy cds but are you going to sell a thousand cds are you going to sell ten thousand like you know it's such a different world for everything now and you got to be on top of that and that's why i'm really i really admire some of those guys like um we talk a little bit about david benedict who's he's a master at it so i admire yeah, what you do i mean yeah i mean it, it i i'm able to do everything that we do 
I use the Royal we, although it's, it's basically me and some help, but, um, every, everything that I, everything, every new thing that we do at the fretboard journal, I do through like my own kind of selfish personal lens. So I got into podcasting because I was listening to podcasts and thought, you know, I, I want to serve our community doing this too. And the same goes with events. It's like, I wish this event existed. Why don't I, why don't we do it? And so I, I'm not at all, you know, uh, zealous about you know in i i want the integrity of everything to i want there to be an integrity to everything that we do but at the end of the day the thing that the fretboard journal is is not necessarily a print magazine it's just a, a vehicle for storytelling and a vehicle to discover stuff and so there's a lot of ways to do that i'm not gonna necessarily like sign up for a tiktok account because that's not <laughs> in my wheelhouse and it's not really authentic if i all of a sudden like start trying to be you know a 20 year old but uh right. But there are a lot of ways to help people discover stuff, and they may or may not have a revenue stream behind them, but you know, at the very least, it'll help build out your following, and so that's why we do some of this stuff. How long does it take to put together an issue on – If I mean, it's probably different every issue, I would imagine, but – I mean, we have some stories that have been in the works for – six months or a year that will finally come out, you know, with our December, January issue. And then we have some stories that sometimes happen within the span of just a couple of weeks, but yeah, we get, all, we get all of our stories and photo, you know, the photography in our magazine is something we take pride in. Most of these photographs, actually a professional photographer was hired and took photos. No one else has ever seen in the world for our, just our magazine. They're not studio shots of instruments with gray backdrops or, you know, the press shots that a band will send out. They are people's own personal home studios and all their gear, as well as, you know, people, sometimes we run pictures or sometimes we'll run features on luthiers and there'll only be one or two shots of a finished instrument because the photos of the person at work are just so cool or their shop is so cool. And that seems more compelling, but, um, yeah, I mean, we get all of that stuff in, and then if we're quick within about a month, you know, that's we try to kind of because we have a a, a uh, contractor who does all of our design, who you know we partner with, who's also based in Seattle. We try not to waste a ton of his time. So usually within about a month from all the stories being copy edited and line edited, all the photos selected, like we can get the issue off to the printer within about a month. So, but there's a lot of work before that month. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. I really can't yeah, imagine. Yeah. I mean, just editing one episode of a podcast sometimes for me is like, wow, this is so oh, I intense. I, I can't you. imagine a magazine <laughs> and yeah, layouts no, and all that the, stuff. The podcast editing. I mean, it is a different skill set, and, and maybe I don't take it. I'm not as much of a perfectionist as I am about grammar or what goes in the magazine. So uh, it feels easier, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of work. <laughs> who are some of the, uh, mandolin people? I know you're talking about the Grisman albums, but who were some other mandolin players that you, uh, that you like to listen to? I mean, I love, uh, not to keep it all on a Grisman theme, but you know, I, I was a huge, I still am, but that Dave Apollon anthology that he put out,
like that's the stuff that really speaks to me because it's it's historical and weird and funny but also very musical and i'm just you know so grateful that he was he did that you know he put out that anthology because otherwise i don't think i would have maybe i would have found it by now but i don't know he, he saved me a few decades um love andy statman musician you know what soul he's just so cool um i mean god the the obviously Thiele and the punch brothers are next level it's kind of hard to even wrap my head sometimes around what they're up to but i know i like it yeah <laughs> <laughs> absolutely um yeah i mean we've we've had uh we had sam bush and tim o'brien interview each other once for the magazine that was super cool um yeah, I mean, my relationship to the mandolin is is kind of funny because, like I said, I am kind of a perpetual beginner. I did take lessons from a local mandolin hero, Pete Martin, uh, for a while. But yeah, even then, I was so bad. Like, I, I would bring him, you know, I, I just bought one of those teens, like a Mana White Gibson A3s. Oh, yeah. I just love those things. Those yeah. things, just like the white pickguard, like everything about those. I, I So I bought one on eBay when, I guess it was, what, Mars Music? Dick went out of business and their whole inventory was on eBay. <laughs> I bought it on eBay, got it. And I just absolutely loved it. But I'd bring, I'd bring him that, you know, one week and he'd give me my lesson plan. And then the next week, as though I didn't even take the mandolin the week prior, I'd bring him like a tenor guitar and be like, okay, well now can, can we do tenor guitar? I just kept jumping around. <laughs> he was probably his worst student ever, but, uh, but I love I, I love just all this stuff, you know, and there's never enough hours in the day to, for me at least, to really dive into it and focus. So instead, I just kind of know a little bit on a lot of different things. Yeah, that's awesome. Is that your is that the only mandolin you own? Well, no. I mean, the only mandolin that I, I aside from like some banjo mandolins that are basically wall hangers or to irritate neighbors. <laughs> uh the only mandolin that I've had from like the entire run of me being sort of a music nerd is a Stradolin. And I, I, when I was a kid, my mom and I used to go to like the Sunday flea markets and she was really big into antiquing and collecting stuff. And I would be dragged along, you know, at 7am in some weird flea market looking at people's stalls. And I very early on gravitated towards the music stuff just because it seemed different and cool. And, you know, it was the time when you could buy like a Tysco Del Rey electric guitar for 40 bucks or whatever. So it was, it was pretty attainable. There was never any like great gems or anything. There were no, you know, uncirculated lores available on Sunday mornings that I, <laughs> I, that I found at least, but, um, but yeah, I bought this Stradolin, like a press top, really simple, you know, I guess 40s era Stradolin A-style. 
And I have to say that mandolin sounds so much better than it should. <laughs> I don't know if you played any of them, but those mandolins, like they are not necessarily long for this world. Like they, they're pressed tops. So the bellies kind of compress over time and flatten out. And, and I don't know that they're worth enough that any luthiers are like rebracing them or anything. But I, you know, I had that Gibson, I've had a Kentucky or two, and inevitably, when either I need money or just want to thin the herd, like I keep the straddling just because I'm like, yeah, this sounds as good. It's loud. It's, I don't know. It's yeah, crazy. That's, that's what that's it's my, about, man. My one standby. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's all sorts of mandolins. I, you know, if I won Powerball, I'd buy tomorrow. I, those, those Lion and Healy ones with the little tripod leg coming out. I mean, I just, <laughs> those are the most beautiful instruments in the world to me. I'm like, wow, it's so, I, I wish everybody, you know, I, I, I want to hear Thiele play one just to, or, or someone of that ilk, just cause they're kind of underrepresented. I know Grisman sort of did with the tone poems, but yeah. What are, um, who are some of the mandolin players out there? You just, you, you turned me on to one that just came out. Um, he was your latest or was well i think you have another episode out since then too but you just interviewed um oh my god i should have wrote this down kevin Burr, right yeah yeah you're like have you listened to this album yet and uh, i clicked on one track i'm like oh my gosh this is great are there any other guys out there like that that you um that you think the mandolin world needs to that, to hear about oh that they might gosh. not be necessary i know that's a tough one <laughs> no i feel like the mandolin world needs to tell me who those guys are because i feel like i'm probably out of the loop i mean there's so many young people who are you know, amazing and have been influenced by Feely and Sam Bush and others that I just probably don't even know. I mean, that Kevin Bright record for folks who don't know, Kevin Bright is this amazing guitarist from the Toronto area of Canada who backed up Nora Jones and Cassandra Wilson and uh, was on Roseanne, uh, Roseanne Cash record and Katie Lang's drag record. And he's sort of this sort of, uh, you know, slide guitar virtuoso. One of those guys like John Leventhal or Mark Ribot that just, you know, everybody adores, but he's also got this amazing fascination with the mandolin. And he put out this record, I guess in September of 2020, maybe it was October. I can't remember, but he put out a 30 song record of covers all done by a mandolin or orchestra that was all him he did all the parts and pour me a drink Teresa in one of those glasses you dust off and I'll watch the ball and he played all vintage mandolin family instruments and he had guest vocalists on each track and as I told him it was like even if this even if he just made a mixtape of the original versions of the songs, it would have been a, a great mixtape. It was like Gillian <laughs> Welch, the Beatles, you know, it was like all over the place. But he did mandolin orchestra interpretations, and the minute I heard about that, I reached out to him through Instagram, the same way you reached out to me, and it was just like, okay, like I've known about you for a while, but this is so out there, we have to talk, because I want to hear about this thing. So, so that's one that's one plug for someone who might not be on a typical mandolin player's radar. He's actually done a few of these records, but this is just the most recent one, so... Now you've got you mentioned a little bit earlier the um the videos which are incredible and I love the room 
that you shoot the videos in. It's, I mean, it's just like, it, it's like gathering it, dust right now. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Right. What a bummer, but it's like such a vibey room. Like to me, that's like, Oh yeah, that's how I want my studio stuff to look like. Just stuff, cool stuff everywhere. But what are some, are there any ma- mandolin centric performances of people that you've had in there that, that kind of stand out that people should check out? Oh man. I mean, we've had, we've had Andrew Marlin. That was relatively recently with Eli West. And the room is so small and and it's apparent. I think it's probably apparent in all the videos, but that, you know, NPR makes a big stick out of the tiny desk concerts. And you're like, yeah, but that's still a big room. It might be a cramped (laughs) desk with a lot of books and stuff, but it's pretty big. Our room is so small that I've had to tell, you know, quartets like there's really this is not going to look good at all. There's no way we're going to get your bass player in the frame. Like it's just there's no room. It's, you know, 10 feet wide at most. And we've got desks on each side. So (laughs) um, so there's there's that. Um, God, we did an we've we've had Andy Statman or we didn't do. We actually did Andy Statman at Dusty Strings, the local acoustic guitar mecca. I thought that was a different place where that video was shot. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of what else we've had. We did a documentary. We we had a, a young guy do a documentary for us on Ellis and Pava mandolins. That was obviously in Austin. Um, we've had Reichman a bunch, I think. Uh, we've had him in the magazine, and he's visited several times. Who else is I'm facing? I should I should have done my mandolin research ah, before this call. What but, fun is that? Um, but the, but <laughs> those performances of all like uh, you know. We, because we were in this central location near a lot of the great venues like the Tractor Tavern in Seattle, we would just get this sort of endless weekly stream of musicians who would come by before they were doing a sound check. And since March of 2020, there hasn't been any of that. So we've had to pivot a little bit, focus more on podcasts, ask people to send us videos, you know, and share those. But, but yeah, we, we love mandolins. We just, it's been a while, I guess. Oh, yeah. 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 I think the videos are so cool. I actually just watched, uh, not mandolin-centric, but um, a Billy Strings doing John Henry. And it's just like... Yes, we just posted that. Yeah. Just killer. I mean, good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. It's, he's he's one of those next-level guys, too. So, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. It's inc- that, that That's one of these things that really bums me about, about these times, because that guy, one of the last live shows I got to see was his strings in the hall in Nashville mm-hmm. and it being in that room when they were playing the first set before they brought even the guests up it was like this he had the room from the minute the lights went down it was amazing and you're like wow this kid i mean i've seen him live a few times i've seen him in i've seen him in front of 20 people and now i'm watching him at this sold out place and i'm like this is like being somewhere where something important's happening and it just stinks mm-hmm. for bands like that who are just like, you know, on this really cool ride and all that hard work coming to fruition. It's just like, <laughs> totally. You no, know? it's it's so cool to see. He's he's like, you know, if you if you could buy uh, stocks and musicians, if you want to, it's like you're just gonna go up. You're just gonna go up. I know it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> just don't fall off your bass fishing boat, and you'll be okay. Yeah, no kidding. He's bass fishing like crazy. <laughs> What about some stories from the from the journal, like uh, mandolin stories or different things that maybe kind of stick out for you that were that you found you know interesting or or that you think maybe some of the listeners here, uh, mandolin lovers yeah. out there, would love to. Uh, yeah, I mean we've like I, 
you mentioned that we had Grisman on our first issue. We were, you know, we love it when musicians, you know, well-known musicians will interview other well-known musicians. And so we've had Grisman and Thiele kind of interview each other. We've had Sam Bush and Tim O'Brien interview each other, which was fantastic. Um, you know, Nick, Nick Forrester's done some writing for us and, you know, we've, we've had so much fun with that stuff. Uh, I, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm thinking about when you ask that question, I think about some of the cool luthiers that we've covered. So like we've covered, you know, um, Tim Ellis, obviously we've covered, uh, Lynn Dudenbostel, who, you know, is such a perfectionist. He wanted to take, you know, he was kind of inspired. He has an Ansel Adams relationship. He, he studied under Ansel Adams. So he wanted to take black and white photos in the vein of Ansel Adams for our magazine, which was just like super cool. Um, God, who else? I mean, there's been, there's been so many uh, amazing people who kind of, do both guitars and mandolins. Uh, Steve Anderson, local jazz guitar, archtop maker. Uh, Bill Frizzell famously played one of his guitars, but he he also did mandolins back in the day. I don't think you could convince him to do one now, but uh, <laughs> Sam Bush played one of those and for a while. And like, um, I don't know, there's just been so many fun, Wyatt Wilkie up in Canada, amazing mandolin maker. Uh, yeah, there's, I don't know. I, all these guys have their own kind of unique backstory and it's what makes the magazine so much fun. It, it is pretty wild to think of like, um, you know, like you said, like the Luthiers and it seems like there's only one way to build this thing, but there are, it's, it's amazing the differences in technique and, and especially among like the big guys of that are building like, you know, you know, like the dude and Bostels and the Ellis and the Gilchrist and, and that, where it's just like, holy cow, it's like a whole, it's a science, a mad science sometimes. Yeah. I mean, that's something that fascinates me is like, and, and I've, I've been lucky enough to interview them both. I think we actually, I don't know if we even still sell, but we used to sell this like kind of crudely designed, I think I designed an ebook where I interviewed a bunch of mandolin people and, you know, interviewing Mike from Nugget versus Gilchrist and like trying to figure out like how their philosophies kind of stray just because they're both amazing mandolins, you know, and they're both kind of in the vein of what Lloyd Lore was doing. And so it's just kind of, it's funny how people take the ball and run with it in their own direction. I mean, we, yeah, we, we've got Michael Hayden in the new issue of the fretboard journal. We have a story on him. Um, I've become really good friends through the magazine with Fletcher Brock, who's based in Bellingham now. Um, and again, that's another one of those weird crossover things where sometimes I'll go up to his workshop and like, we'll just talk about electric guitar amplifiers. Cause that's his other side hobby. In addition to like boating and various other things. Um, he's like hand wiring tube amps. And so, yes, we'll talk about, you know, octave mandolins and all that other stuff, but it's, it's kind of fun. Have you, um, has there been any instruments that you've gotten to play where you're just like, oh man, uh, I mean, even mandolins, guitars. I mean, I don't do them justice. That's <laughs> well, the problem, that's... but I've been handed lots of lores, you know, John Reichman and my buddy Craig Korth up in Canada, who famously would go to Wintergrass or any bluegrass festival and let anyone, you know, let a six-year-old play his lore. Like he's the, he's like the Johnny Appleseed of vintage <laughs> instruments. He just wants to share the love. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, uh, I've been able to play a lot of those. I've been able to buy a couple of really cool instruments. 
I have a, you know, we, we did a couple of stories on Wayne Henderson, the luthier from rugby, uh, Virginia, and I own a Henderson now. Um, and his mandolins are also amazing. I just, you know, I, I'm not worthy. (laughs) 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 Oh, we've had Mike Compton at the magazine. I'm trying to think, I'm still thinking about like who we shot recently, not recently, but what videos, but yeah, we, we've covered a fair number. We've got a lot of ways to go, but yeah. Yeah, I hope that uh, that comes around again where you can start doing that. That's so sweet about being so centrally located and owning or, or you know running an incredible magazine where you know it's just like you got to stop by the fretboard journal office. Then if you're in Seattle, you know that's it's got to be a nice a nice feeling to have as well. Yeah, I mean it's just been fun because a lot of a lot of magazine get developed kind of in a vacuum a writer is toiling away in front of their laptop they've done their interview then they have to craft it and it's just kind of nice to be reminded like oh yeah this is about music (laughs) here sit in this corner and let's film you for 10 minutes and uh let's all remind ourselves that uh as beautiful as this magazine is it is all about music at the end of the day have you seen any um any weird uh changes in 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 music things or just like styles of music that when you first started you know have kind of become popular or any particular players where you were like oh man this guy's going to come up kind of like billy strings i guess maybe is like as a good example of you know right at the beginning you kind of saw this just because of your foot in the door in music that that really kind of came up to be really well i mean there's been a ton of amazing musicians who've who've come up the ranks over the 15 years i think what's been astounding is you know to go to a bluegrass festival and see the sheer virtuosity of some of these super young people playing um that's been that's been crazy to witness you know the folks who've you know been raised on youtube videos basically and can just play circles around most of us mere mortals and they're right. not old enough to drive. <laughs> uh, that, that's that been a pretty wild ride um, to, to observe. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, there's been so many, uh, you know, it's not mandolin related, but there's, you know, there've been so many amazing records in the last year where I'm, I'm just like, I can't wait to see uh, this record is fantastic, but I also can't wait to see what is around the corner for this person. And, and one of the people that I'm thinking of is this singer songwriter, Christian Lee Hudson. this year that just it's like i i was like i said way back i was an indie rock kind of punk rock guy so i was thoroughly obsessed with like the music of elliot smith and nick drake yeah me too buddy and and christian lee hudson this young guy from southern california like completely channels that and it is so beautifully done and this record i mean it's produced by phoebe bridgers who's huge now and it's got this huge cult following but it kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, this guy had been to our office a couple of years ago and, and played a, a song for us and then kind of went on and uh, didn't really hear much about him. And then this record kind of just stopped me in my tracks when I heard it for the first time this year. And so, yeah, there's always, I don't know. It's, it's always fascinating. Who's, who's, who's up to what. 
how do you um how do you find your new music now that's one challenge i seem to find i mean um especially with like just anything there's so many ways to find it but yet the word about it is even though it's <laughs> everywhere it's like nowhere at the same time like i'm always like caught off guard but like that album's been out for what how long <laughs> when did this I come know. out do you have any I secrets know. on that it's <laughs> it's become tough for me we do get uh we do get pitched from publicists and musicians all the time. You know, that's my inbox has like 60,000 emails from 15 <laughs> years of people telling me about their, their new record or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I do try to keep up with stuff. A lot of it is word of mouth. A lot of it is just, you know, I'll give this song a spin. Uh, I found, I mean, I hate to say it. I found a lot of music through like Spotify and, youtube sure which, you know, yeah it is convenient and it, it is convenient work. but at the same time it's tougher to i think really fall in love with something because you know that cd's not in your car for a week or two weeks or three weeks you know oh for sure yeah i mean the just the sheer embarrassment of riches that you know we can be schizophrenic and jump around from one thing to the next and you know if take three tracks from one record and make a playlist with, you know, five others from some other record. It's kind of an, it's a nutty time. It's an amazing time, but it's nutty. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think I'm probably no different than a lot of music journalists and that you, you kind of, at this stage in the game, you kind of realize like, Oh, these labels speak to me or my, you know, these labels resonate with me. And so if some labels, send you a record, you might pay attention to them more than if another label, you know, that, that it doesn't have the same track record in your head. And I think most consumers kind of think along those lines on some, you may, you may not even realize that you're, you know, just into rounder records or compass or whatever, but sometimes that's, that's just how it plays out. Um, and then, you know, I, I do discover music all the time from publicists who send me stuff uh, and off, off probably also overlook great music that I should be paying attention to but just get lost <laughs> in the tracks. Yeah. But, I um, mean, that's the amazing thing again, but even like the recording equipment from like 15 years ago, like people can put out an album, somebody could get an idea tonight and, you know, and put it out by Friday, you know, and have yeah. it, and, and it'll sound relatively, well, I mean, some stuff sounds incredible. I can't believe some of the stuff like that I've done interviews on where people have just recorded it in their, you know, like bedroom and send it off to be mastered. It's, it's yeah. blows my mind, you know? Yeah. One of the, one of the fun stories of 2020, which hasn't had many fun stories at all is, uh, and it's not mandolin related, but this a musician that I uh, adore and, and like, I, I can't put my head, I can't even wrap my head around some of the stuff he does. But Daniel Romano is this Canadian musician, also actually kind of from the Toronto area, eastern side of Canada, who uh, is much more punk rock, artsy, indie than a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about, or even that the Fretboard Journal normally features. But he has put out, I think, 10 or 11 records in 2020 alone. He and his band were in their own little quarantine bubble and basically living next to each other. And for, I want to say six weeks straight, there was a new record every single week. And then he took a break. He took a break because uh, I, I forget what it was, um, but he, he, he took a break and then he came back and the year is not over. And he just put out another record last week. And <laughs> And and to be, to be that creative and also 
more importantly, to be that fearless of just like, I'm just going to put these out. And if people want to hear them, great. If they don't, I don't care. Like, that's the beauty of where we're at right now. You can throw stuff up on Bandcamp. And if you want, you could throw some more stuff up next week. <laughs> it doesn't have to be constrained by the old model, um, especially this year, if you're feeling it, you know. Who's is there any particular person that you've wanted to interview that you haven't interviewed yet? Like, is there like a dream guest or a couple dream guests that haven't graced oh, the pages oh, yet? Man, that's a good question. I'm trying to think on the mandolin side of things, who we haven't interviewed that we should. And I'm, I bet a bunch of people are listening right now and going, yeah. "You're an idiot. You yeah. haven't interviewed <laughs> this person or this person." Um, boy, or not even in the mandolin the world, just like dream people of like of any instrument that you've been like, oh, just. You know, could be anybody. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because uh, I, I have a lot of music heroes that I love and that I probably will interview multiple times. And then I have a lot of music heroes where, you know, the, the real music heroes like um, Neil Young or Bob Dylan or even Eric Clapton, I, I'm apprehensive because I'm I, I don't know. A, they probably don't need the, they definitely don't need the fretboard journal to help their career, but B they may not have any interesting or new stories that uh, haven't been told a million times before. And so, and that's kind of what we bill our magazine as being about is like, we're going to give you access to people's music collections so you can see all their gear up close. And we're also going to get stories you haven't seen on the internet or in other magazines yet. And so sometimes when you get to that super upper echelon of artists, you're like, yeah, they're not gonna, are they really going to sit down with me for three hours the way (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> these other people would i don't think so um but yeah i mean i'm always i'm always looking out for i don't know i'm open to all if it's a good story i'm open to almost anything we've got james taylor in our next issue which took a lot a lot of work to get um so that was a fun one but yeah holy cow that's awesome that's yeah like that's the type of guy that i see like you know like for, especially for your magazine like it's like a guy like james taylor is like a perfect fit like like grisman's a perfect fit like this these yeah. absolute legends who are at the top of their game and just craftsmen and just put out so much great stuff that's the type of stuff that you expect to see when you open fretboard, fretboard journal i think anyway you know it's just always classic great stuff yeah yeah um and and there's a lot of people that you know uh we've already interviewed that we we should interview again i mean if if i could get tony rice on the phone again i'd be amazing you know we've, yeah, we've no had kidding. it in a magazine way back I don't really know what he's been up to, but I'm sure he's got interesting things to say. (laughs) (laughs) He, um, somebody, did you hear the interview that somebody had done with him? Um, somebody posted it on Facebook last year and it was just Hmm. like a, uh, just like a recorded phone call with Tony. Um, no, it was pretty interesting. And I thought there was going to be a second phone call. I'll see if I can't track that down for you. I'll shoot you that. Uh, I'll text it to you, the link or whatever. And it wasn't any, it wasn't like a publication, I don't think, or anything like that. If I'm recalling correctly, I think it might've just been like a friend or something like along those lines. I got to look that up. I I just remember it was last year sometime. And, um, and it's not really, I mean, it's, it's not like a high quality podcast recording or anything like that, you know, but it's really interesting. I do remember that. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I mean, we still haven't done anything with like Del McCurry, Bonnie McCurry. Like, we've got we got work to do. <laughs> <laughs> How many issues? We've done videos with them, but we've you know sometimes these these articles are so substantial that it's like okay, first we've got to find the right writer who's got the right angle, and we've got to 
get their timing right so we can get all these instruments photographed and get someone out to wherever they're comfortable having these instruments displayed. And so there's a lot of moving pieces. And so sometimes, you know, it's not that we're sliding anybody or whatever. It's just that, you know, all the pieces kind of need to align before people see the finished product. And that can take years sometimes. Yeah. And how many issues is it a year? Is it quarterly? It's quarterly. We had some uh, slowdowns due to the pandemic, so we're not going to have four. But when people subscribe, we, you know, if you give us forty-four bucks, we're going to send you four issues, even if it takes, you know, sixteen months instead of twelve or whatever. But, um, but yeah, we're quarterly, and uh, we'll continue to be if we thought about increasing that. But you know, and and we've done some like standalone issues for electric guitars for the last two years i I don't know that we're going to keep doing that and and maybe one day we'll do a standalone mandolin like one-off annual thing i mean i i think the fun thing about the fretboard journal is we've built this platform we've got this built-in audience that loves you know and trusts what we do and so I'd love to partner with more people and just come up with more fun stuff that may or may not be a quarterly magazine but you know our our we'll speak to our audience, you know? Yeah. Well, man, I, I love the amazing work you do. I mean, I've, I've, since issue one, I've just been absolutely blown away. And then the podcast is, is so good and it's always cool guests and, and, and cool interviews. I love all those. And, and you, you're, you're like in the three hundreds of episodes, right? For, for the, for the fretboard journal. Yeah. Podcast? I mean, we've done, we've done 300, <laughs> five fretboard journal podcasts 56 or 57 of the vintage amplifier podcast and i think we're up to about 50 of the luthier on luthier podcast that we've been doing which comes out monthly um and so yeah we've had uh, a lot of podcasts <laughs> yeah that's great I, I i find you inspiring man i'm 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 really ecstatic to have you on this podcast um because oh, again it's just been like a for inviting me i mean i'm not uh i i love mandolins and i love the world of mandolins and and all all the varying pieces of it but i'm i'm by no means a mandolin authority or uh and no one wants to hear me play the mandolin <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know what you you put out just the like and in print like the some of the best stuff that people can get in a magazine for mandolin by far, hands down. And I, I really appreciate that. And I'm sure oh, a lot of people you. out there listening do too. So, yeah, it's fun to celebrate it. It's fun to turn guitarists onto this whole other side of the music world that they may not know. And, and hopefully maybe some mandolin people are learning about some guitar stuff too. So, yeah. And then I do have one last question. Cause it is the mandolins yeah. and beer podcast. So yeah. I do just have to ask if you have a favorite beer. Yeah, we should. If we just let off with beer, we could have. <laughs> I could have been so much more authoritative. It been so much more fun. Uh, I so I, I hate to be stereotypical, but I am one of those Pacific Northwest people that was all about the IPAs until I don't know. You reach some age, and then you get burned out on IPAs. I feel like I'm one of many that this has happened to for sure. But, uh, but I, you know, I think the beer that I would, uh, if, if there were liquor stores to rob and I needed to rob one and it was available, <laughs> like Pliny the elder from Russian river in California, probably the best IPA, easily one of the best beers I've ever had. Um, they used to be distributed as far North as Seattle. Really? Now, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me. I think it's only California and Oregon and maybe some select West coast cities or, 
get it, but we don't get it up here anymore. It's oh, very man. Yeah. Well, that's the worst. Um, I, I love the dogfish stuff from the East Coast, the 60-minute IPA, also good. But lately, like I said, I don't know, I'm 46 years old. Maybe it's just midlife crisis thing. Like I've been, cre- I've been liking just the lighter beers. Sure. Like a Pilsner. Oh, man, I love a good Pilsner, though. There's like nothing yeah. like a crisp Pilsner and just be like, ah, that's what I needed right then. Yeah, yeah. So that, uh, I, I just love experimenting with all those. I mean, if anybody comes to Seattle, uh, and needs beer recommendations post COVID, <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's not, uh, I mean, there's, it's easy enough to get beer here, but it, when people are vacationing again, just people can reach out to me, but in, in our little area alone of Ballard where the fretboard journal is, I mean, I think probably the most award-winning brewery is a place called Rubens Brews, which started probably 10 or 12 years ago and it was basically like a storage unit and now has boomed into this you know they they can their beers and uh much bigger operation with like multiple locations now around seattle and that's normally where i tell people just to go because they're gonna get good beer awesome but there's a lot of beers (laughs) there is a lot of beers that's the best (laughs) it's a great thing It's a great thing. Well, man, Jason, yeah. thank you so much for doing this. I oh, really appreciate for it. Me. Absolutely. Yeah.